0: Politics, philosophy, and science. You will be challenged. You will question everything you thought you believed. Prepare to teach. Be- Back to Analyzed, everybody. And this week uh, we're doing something a little bit different. Um, We're actually also live streaming video. So uh, I'll probably be uploading the video to YouTube as well as Facebook, but right now we're actually live streaming to Facebook. Um, You guys can join us uh, for these. I'm gonna try to do more of these. Uh, I think it's actually a really fun idea. We'll try to get video for everybody. Right now we just kind of have, I've got a video feed on my end, but that's, that's it for now. Um, but you can actually go to our Facebook page if you search for "Analyze Podcasts" and you'll be able to watch there um, when we're doing the live shows. Um, but uh, this week we've got uh, JJ is back with us again. Hey, and, hey, how you doing, man? Oh, as good as I look. <laughs> Well, I mean, you got some really badass sideburns, so uh, you must be doing (laughs) fantastic. And This week, uh, we're actually going to be talking with philosopher Ben Watkins, who I was introduced to years ago uh, whenever I discovered uh, the Real Atheology podcast, which was a a really, really interesting show. I I learned a lot from it, so I'm kind of fanboying over here where I'm going to just kind of moderate between... Listening to Ben and JJ uh, kind of go back and forth. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing well.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, thank you for joining our tiny little nothing podcast. <laughs> really appreciate it. Um, so we're going to kind of be discussing uh, some philosophy uh, as we have a philosopher on the show. Um, we're going to be talking about free will, determinism, and um, uh, compatibilism and, and kind of where... Uh, maybe where Ben and JJ might have some slight disagreements or maybe you want to push back on each other. But uh, uh, if you guys want to kind of, if one of you wants to just kind of explain what some of these concepts are for the listener.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, we, the best place to start would be with our concept of free will. So we all have this um, experience of. Um, making choices in the world and we believe that our choices matter in that they influence the world and the way the world could have been and that we can also be responsible for the choices we make that some of our choices can be right or wrong um, because there are certain ways we ought to have acted our, our our action can be wrong because we ought to have acted differently and so that's kind of a natural starting Point um, in our experience. But there's this other idea of causal determinism, which is the idea that um, events are in time and sufficiently caused by prior events. So, to give a little bit more of a robust, more robust understanding of determinism, because this one's a little bit more difficult to wrap your head around. Um, than is the experience that we have of free will. But an event um, such as a choice or a decision um, or an act is determined when prior conditions like fate, um, the foreordained acts of God, or antecedent causes and the laws of nature are a sufficient condition for the event occurring. So um, on this idea, a very natural understanding of it is is that if all of events in time are the sufficiently caused by antecedent causes, then the future is inevitable. So this idea of free will, um, of could have done otherwise, and this idea of the future is inevitable, raises an interesting tension. um, Because it seems like we couldn't hold both of these views. So there's two broad camps in this debate. There are the incompatibilists who believe that our concept of free will is just incompatible with our concept of determinism. And then there's the compatibilists (laughs) who say, no, this tension is really just apparent and that um, we can have a concept of free will that is compatible with causal determinism. And so this tension um, in these camps are probably one of the largest fault lines, so to speak, in the philosophy of mind. Um, There are a lot of people who want to hold on to these incompatibilist senses of free will because they think those are the only ways in which um, we can have a coherent sense of could have done otherwise. And therefore, determinism is false. But then there are other people, the hard determinists, um, who say, you know, look, uh, in, order of a, in order to make sense of this concept of could have done otherwise, then our acts would have to be um, miracles, in a sense, and that they would have to violate laws of nature or the foreordained acts of God, and that it just couldn't be this way. And so that free will, as we experience it, is an illusion. And that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable because there are implications of that view, um, especially with something like moral responsibility. How can we be praiseworthy or blameworthy um, for our acts if it's not the case that we could have done otherwise? And so what does it what sort of implications does this have for like our justice system? So our entire justice system is is predicated on the idea that people can be blameworthy and punished for their actions, and that they were free to choose one way rather than another. Um, And so I think that helps uh, lay kind of some broad groundwork for the problem. Uh, J.J., did you want to add anything here?
2: No, I think that you you did a professional job of that. Um, (laughs) Thank you, sir. I I usually don't use the term hard determinist because I I think that, or at least it feels like in the literature that I've come across, that refers to specifically a determinism that doesn't include randomness. And I think that randomness probably exists, but I don't think it gets you out of the problem of determinism. Like the idea that even though things are random, you're still, you, know, you still don't have free, free choice to do otherwise. And so I've seen in the literature the term adequate determinist used, and that's the, where I hang my hat.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha.
2: But, um, but ultimately, the question that's being discussed is not different. It's can people do otherwise, given if they had been in the same situation, like if we created a duplicate universe and put you in a difficult situation where you had to make a difficult moral judgment, would you be able to do otherwise given the same set of pre-existing circumstances?
1: Gotcha. So to... And I... I, Oh, go ahead. Oh, to to lay out... um, So... This is the where, where I was using the term hard determinism was to help contrast with what's often called libertarian freedom. Yeah. And so these two sides of the coin are the incompatibilist camp. This is the camp that is saying that free will and causal determinism are incompatible. And so you can land in either camp. So um, J.J. is very right for pointing out that something like quantum mechanics um, is going to Raise some issues for the uh, what I'm calling the hard determinist camp here, um, because there might be something like indeterminacy um, in the world. There, there is actual randomness in the world, and so I think that's a perfectly fair dis- 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 distinction um, to to help draw awareness to a problem with that hard determinist. Um, view in the incompatibilist camp. And so to, to try to help lay out this tension a little bit more explicitly, um, there's, in our concept of libertarian free will, or just free will in general, it doesn't have to be, but, but since we're in the incompatibilist camp, we'll, we'll take libertarian free will for, uh, for the moment. Um, Our wills are not free unless we could have done otherwise. This is what's known often as the principle of alternate possibilities. Uh, But if determinism is true, then we could not have done otherwise because our acts are inevitable. Now, this is the case whether or not there is randomness or not. Um, The incompatibilist is going to insist that there's just one set of possible worlds, the actual world. And so our future is um, set, if you will. And so the conjunction of these two views is that if determinism is is true, then our wills are not free because our acts are inevitable. And this view often goes by the label of fatalism. Um, For those who are familiar with um, their Greek mythology, there's the um, tale of Oedipus Mm -hmm. who is fated to kill his father and marry his mother and that no matter what he try no matter what decisions he makes that's what's going to happen so that helps so perhaps fatalism might be um, a more useful term here to help try to put the problem in incompatibilist terms in its in its strongest form because then if we if we if we just insist that no our wills are free because we could have done otherwise um, then it would follow that something like causal determinism is false. And we could try to support that with the um, randomness that JJ was trying to was appealing to earlier by saying that look, determinism like we do have libertarian free will, and that's the grounds for believing that we could have done otherwise because there is this real randomness in the world and therefore determinism is false. Now, now I think, think that that's some pro- there's some problems with that view, yeah. but that's that that's going to be the um, largely the route that the incompatibilist is going to try to take, whether they fall on the libertarian free will account or the hard determinist slash fatalist camp. And, like, I hang my
2: hat and might as well come out of the closet with it on fatalism. Like, I think that there is no free will whatsoever. And I think that believing that we still have choices has moral consequences.
1: Okay, so... This is, this is a great place to pick up because so, the incompatibilist, um, who is a defender of libertarian free will, is going to push back in, uh, here and say that, that no, there, there, couldn't, there, there couldn't be anything morally significant about our decisions um, because our acts cannot be wrong unless we ought to have acted otherwise. And so going to Immanuel Kant, um, because I just can't help myself but to talk about <laughs> Kant, um, <laughs> um, one of his I famous principles is that ought implies can. And so what he means by this is that um, we ought to have acted otherwise only if we could have acted otherwise. It can't be the case that I ought to have run faster than a cheetah if it's not the case that I can run faster than a cheetah. And so... Um, therefore, it would follow that the conjunction of those two claims is that our acts cannot be wrong unless we could have acted otherwise. But as we've already seen earlier, that if determinism, determinism is true on the incompatibilist view, then we could not have acted otherwise. There is no coherent sense of could have done otherwise. Right. Because there our are, there acts are, no are inevitable. In yeah. Yeah. Therefore, if determinism is true, our acts cannot be wrong because our acts are inevitable. There is no; you, you, it can't be the case that we ought to have acted differently unless we could have acted differently. But that could have acted differently is exactly what the incompatibilist is saying. Determinism rules out. And, and so I, and I, the lip. Go, so go, go,
2: sorry. Go ahead. Well, one one of the things that we're we're dealing with here is we, we've already brought in the sort of like the implication that if morality there's a premise here that we haven't actually talked about and the premise is if morality is true then determinism and free will have a you know a problem like the incompatibilist have a problem assigning moral responsibility or the ter- determinist has a problem assigning moral responsibility
1: Yes, like to yes. make that
2: claim, we do have to first either assume for the sake of argument or show that a moral standard that requires right and wrong
1: exists. That, no, so I think that's a very great point, because um, the one of the difficulties of the libertarian uh, free will position, the incompatibilist position here, is, is that we can't just assume morality as a datum here. Because what the um, hard determinist or the fatalist here is doing is that they're arguing to the conclusion that we could not have done otherwise. So if you're going to insist that our acts can be wrong because our acts are not inevitable, you have to have an argument for that. You can't just assume that to be the case. And so there have been very, very many, att- you know, much, much ink has been spilled. Um, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, Probably Um, um, more ink on morality than determinism. (laughs) So um, trying to do that. So um, my approach is to leave the incompatibilist camp. And so my feet are in the compatibilist camp. And so what I want to insist is that there is a coherent sense of could have done otherwise, even if determinism is true. And so that it's just false that if determinism is true, then our acts are inevitable. Um, I think that's where the mistake is. And if we do away with that premise, then we can have a concept of free will um, that is compatible with determinism and make something like moral responsibility and rightness and wrongness Um, a possibility and so that this problem doesn't threaten something like morality so instead of trying to build up this premise that morality is a datum i try to instead undermine the claim that if determinism is true then our acts are inevitable and so how do i do that (laughs) (laughs) And, (laughs) and so i think um that What has to happen is is that we have to be looking in the right place for free will, and that people have been looking, historically, in the wrong place for free will. They've been looking in physics. But I, I think that's the mistake. I think we have to actually look at biology. And that's where free will comes into play. And so what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that we're free in a sense that no bird is free. So... It used to be the case that um, it was inevitable that the Earth would be struck by an asteroid. In fact, that did happen. Killed the dinosaurs. But now something's changed. We're Homo sapiens, and it's no longer the case that it's inevitable that the Earth will be struck by an asteroid. Well, why is that? Well, anyone who's seen Armageddon... Um, granted this would be a huge engineering feat, we could theoretically build spacecraft that go out into space to an incoming asteroid and intercept it and deflect it off of its course so that it then misses the Earth. So it's, it's no longer the case that it's inevitable that the Earth will be hit by an asteroid. So what changed between the dinosaurs and us? And I think the answer is, is that freedom evolved. And so we are the kinds of beings that can conceptualize future alternatives. And the conceptualization of these future alternatives or possible worlds then determine our actions so that we can take course to make things avoid. We can avoid certain events from happening. So when we look at the term inevitable. It's like the term disgruntled. We know that there's this other word, gruntled, but we don't really use it. And so just like gruntled, there's this other word called evitable. There's this evitability in the world, this ability to avoid. Um, if I throw a brick at your head, you can duck and it misses you. And then you can ask, well, was it ever, you know, was it inevitable that, that the brick was going to hit your head? Well, no, the, the light bounced off the brick into your eyes and your nervous system took the appropriate response and you ducked and you moved out of, out of the way. And so it's that ability, it's that capacity to be able to conceive of future possibilities and take action now, totally determined, or actually totally determined, but to, to, make it so that certain possibilities do not obtain. That's the sense in which we have free will. But now this idea of free will is a different concept of free will that than the libertarian is using. So we're not going to be able to defend this concept of free will by appealing to something like our immediate experiences of making decisions. This is, a lot of people think it's a watered-down um concept of free will and in in a way it is because it's not the the contra causal super califragilistic conception of free will that most people think we should have that that's what's necessary for things like responsibility but um and i'm i'm taking this line from daniel dennett um in his books um elbow room and freedom evolves and the response here is that no, this is, this is the kind of freedom worth having because one, it's, it's possible. It doesn't require anything mysterious or miraculous. And it's also worth having because it gives us the things that we're worried about. Things like moral responsibility or rationality. The things that we think are threatened by something like determinism. And so, um, I've I I've, I've probably been rand, rand, uh, rambling at this point. So JJ, if you wanted, to well, <laughs>
2: no, that's I mean that's a,
1: an incredible primer
2: to what the goal of compatibilism is. I, yes. So, sometimes I feel like compatibilism though is is an attempt to affirm the consequent, like it is the idea that because we want to preserve a lot of these ideas of like these moral structures that we've developed as you know as a as species and as a as thinking agents we need to do what we can to preserve those things and i'm not terribly discomforted by the idea of biting that bullet but it doesn't require that i abandon morality although i do abandon the concept of right and wrong um but we, we, I'm sure we'll get to that. There's a lot, as you talked about, there's so much to cover and lots of ink has been
1: spilled. <laughs> it's a rabbit hole for
2: sure. Man, <laughs> and, and and I love it. Like, I, it's really, it's been really rewarding to just try to understand it better. Um, one of the things that I do want to push back on, like, if I'm, maybe, check my paraphrase on this. The idea that we are more free than the dinosaurs is because we have a larger set of options to draw from. Yes. I, I am, here's, one of the reasons I am hesitant, like, that I'm just hesitant about that idea, is I, I, I like uh, chess. I watch chess videos on YouTube, because I'm a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> and my favorite chess channel is a guy named Agadmator. And uh, he's from uh, Central Europe somewhere, and he speaks really excellent English, and he just goes over, he tries to do at least one game a day. And he's been doing this for years. He just got a million subscribers. I love this channel. But a couple of years ago, he covered a series of games between DeepMind's AlphaZero chess engine and Stockfish 8, which was almost the best chess, like brute force chess engine on the planet. And in DeepMind AlphaZero's games, DeepMind played like the most elegant human imaginable. It was unbelievable. It's estimated that the ELO rating for AlphaZero would have been about 4,000. For people who are chess nerds, that's like 70% higher than the world champion. It's almost double. It's just abnormal. And when DeepMind was making... When AlphaZero makes all these decisions, AlphaZero would look at neural network layers of complicated position advantages weigh those against other neural network layers of complicated positional advantages and risks and then brute force some depth into it to see if one like if castling would be more preferable to playing f3 pro tip almost always <laughs> um but And Stockfish, when Stockfish was playing against it, Stockfish would be looking to a depth of either 30 or 40 moves over and over and over again, a billion times a second. It would look at all of these alternative options and then it would make a choice. But in this example, I don't feel like there's any place where we get some utility, like some, some traction out of that choice. And those that infinite infinitude of options, just because we have lots and lots of options, we wouldn't look at alpha zero and say, "Well, you're a person now." And that's one of the, I guess that's that's one of the th- things that I think w- we should put a pin because I know I'm sure that there there like there aren't perfect symmetries there between that and a person. Sure. And um, but. I think that the ways that they are symmetrical are still important to my position. Well, I, think it's, I think that no matter how complicated the human brain gets, I think it is still bound, whether it's physics or biology, you know, nature, environment, genetics, yada, yada, yada. I'm a big fan of Robert Sapolsky and the massive amount of work the guy's done um, in describing how our things that make us actually dictate the choices that we make. I think that it's, it's really, I, I have yet to find a way that it's really meaningfully different than Alpha Zero being able to calculate so many wild choices and make a choice. I think it is a choice and it's impactful. You know, it, it won Alpha Zero the game, almost all of them. But all of those choices, I would never say, well, that's good enough to call it free will. Now, and and that's that's just one place that I'm coming from, but that's one of the reasons I'm very hesitant to, because I've seen that compatibilist, you know, that point before, it's different than when there was some sense of inevitability. I think that it's still inevitability, just with more steps.
1: So, you you, um, briefly mentioned um, that there's going to be some significant differences between this chess program and a person actually um, making decisions while playing chess, someone like you and I. Um, And I think that's right. I think that's um, the point that we should focus on for a second. Sure. Um, Because what I'm saying is that what we need for freedom is foreknowledge and and, um, the path that that foreknowledge can guide us. So we could say in a very important sense that – this computer is is more free than certain other things that could play chess so that there is um, a sense in which this computer is free. But there's also a very important sense in which these two kind of things are very vastly different And so and that's going to be conscious experiences. So it's a long tradition in uh, since Plato is, that man is a rational animal. That what is you know, essentially what makes us human um, is our ability to um, act for reasons, and so that has largely been undermined in the twentieth century from a tradition in philosophy known as phenomenology, mm-hmm. um, which says that no, um, we what what makes us essentially human isn't our ability to reason. That's certainly a unique human capacity, but what makes us human, what's really essentially human, is our ability to learn skills, to be able to respond to the way the phenomena of the world are presented to our conscious minds. So um, you're both musicians, so there's a relationship between a person and its instrument in a way that an instrument almost becomes an extension of your body. There's a way that instrument, the phenomenology of an instrument and the music it produces presents itself to our consciousness. And you can feel it. You can, and anyone who is a master of their craft knows that it's these little series of buildings, blocks of little acquired skills that then start to perfect themselves over time that that in essence is what makes us human and this is a this is a feature that isn't a feature of something like a chess program well and so I, when I we're may, thinking I might ab-
2: actually interrupt you sure go well, ahead for a point of clarity when they built, Google's DeepMind built the uh, AlphaZero program. All it did was give D- AlphaZero the rules. Yes.
1: And then it let it play itself, and it learned. So think of those rules that has been given as the laws of physics. Okay? But yep. Remember what I said earlier that it's not the laws of physics. It's not physics that we should be looking for free will. It's biology. It's the evolved states that we we've evolved this capacity for freedom in a way that this computer program has not evolved, in a way that this we experience something like a game of chess in a way that this computer program doesn't experience the game of chess, and I think this is a very very important um, uh, difference because it means that our rationality and morality, even you know by extension. Um, is discursive. And so what do I mean by discursive? Discursive meaning um, we can uh, act for reasons but also respond to challenges to our reasoning using language. So something like language has allowed us to then reflect on what we have told us, you know, I'm going to act for this reason. But then another person challenges that reason such that we can then act, we can modify that reason to, to act for some other reason. This whole idea of a discursive rationality is not the kind of rationality that we find in the computer program. I don't what we know, find in the computer sounds like program AI with more steps. It is. So, <laughs> so it, this is why I think AI is. is um don't get me wrong we've made we've made great great leaps in yeah. AI there's just um no doubt about it, no doubt about that, but we haven't been able to replicate um the human experience and so there's a famous uh philosopher of language named John Searle yep. and he puts this point with what's called his Chinese room thought experiment and so the idea behind this thought experiment is that Um, imagine that you're in a a box that looks like a machine, and people come up to it with um, Chinese notes. And they put put in these notes with these Chinese symbols written on them. And you're in there, and you have all these uh, Chinese translating materials. And you can look up um, what that symbol is. And you can then write in another language what that symbol is. But you don't actually understand Chinese. Now to the person on the outside of this machine you're just gonna seem like something that understands Chinese. That's, that's just you're putting in the input and you're getting out the output. But the point of this thought experiment helps us realize is that you're the one inside the machine and you don't actually understand Chinese. There's something that a machine just can't quite replicate. And people on the outside might not be able to tell the difference between the machine and the person. And so this is what I was trying to get at when I was saying that something like rationality and are essentially discursive. It requires that there's this language that is um, understood between parties back and forth. Um, There's something that... It doesn't break the laws of physics, but it's the laws of physics in a much, much, much more complex arena. Biology. Sure. So, um, you know, physics, then to chemistry, then to biology, then to psychology, then to politics. Um, and so it's this journey of um, the discourse, this discursive... Um, system that has evolved over time with a language and the kinds of beings we are, has a sen- there's a sense of freedom in there that just isn't, we haven't quite replicated it yet in our things like AI or the chess model. Now, that's just not to say that we won't at some point, you know, um, Google's deep AI right now is making incredible, incredible headway by taking in these insights from things like phenomenology and John Searle's um, Chinese room experiment, you know, things in the philosophy of language where we're starting to decode the process. Yeah. Um, but we're just not quite there yet. Now,
2: I'm not committed to the idea that uh, it's not like something to be a computer processor processing. Um. Then you can blame Emerson Green for that.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, I'm also like I thought. I thought about when I first read about John Searle's uh, thought experiment, the Chinese box problem. I I thought it was a really really good challenge for the differentiation between just an analytical machine and a human. But like not being able to like. It's like I have to have a philosophy of mind that mm-hmm. features or or that preferences human-type experiences to kind of accept that. Like, I don't know that people aren't just more complicated Chinese boxes. Like, I think that experience and feeling don't necessarily get give me any more traction i think that they're important like i think that the reason that morality exists is because we have experiences you know it's, it's morality is dependent upon the fact that suffering can and cannot exist in different abstract concepts of a world you know like so, in some possible so this would be a
1: great place um for me to, to to put a pin in um because you said earlier that um your concept of morality just does away with the concepts of right and wrong and I find that a very fascinating review. So what does a concept of morality look like if we've um, – so, so I take the essential concept of morality to be ought or should, um, these essentially normative terms, that we ought to act in some way rather than another. And if we don't act in those ways, then we've acted right, wrongly. And if we do act in the ways that we ought to, we've acted rightly. So if we take those concepts of right and wrong out, what does morality look like? Well, I,
2: I had, the reason I, I kind of like just uh, was dissuaded from using them is because I realized that if we act in this way, it would be acting rightly. And if we act in this way, it would be acting wrongly. We have to actually substitute something in for that rightly or wrongly to actually know what we're talking about. Like, Absent any clarification on those terms, right and wrong don't have any meaning. Like, what
1: does it mean to act rightly? Uh, it means that you've acted in a way that you ought to have acted. That this way is what ought to be done. Why ought so you do you, that? Uh, from there, could be several reasons. So it could be um, weakness of the will. Um, it could be we could be insane. Um, in the sense so in that you know might not be the case it might be the case that we ought to act in some way i mean i'm Um, just like if
2: it's the case that we ought to act that way because it's right and it's right because
1: we ought to act that way i don't feel like i i I feel certainly there's an unhelpful circularity of definition there i'm 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 totally with you um uh, and that's one of the things that makes morality difficult (laughs) i think that when people and here's
2: where what i came to is I think that morality was was a way that people talked about like suffering and flourishing and how people's experiences were. And when people talk about, well, you know, it, it is not right to torture children pointlessly. It's not right because of the impact of suffering in the world. And I think that it's not that I'm opposed to concepts like right and wrong. I just think that they end up being like a placeholder for, uh, you know, not having to go down the complicated rabbit hole of being like, well, it's wrong because more people will suffer or more, you know, experiencing agents would suffer.
1: No, that's fair. Um, so uh, hopefully this will help for some listeners to try to help. Cause I know we've, we've, we've traveled a, a bit from, uh, philosophy of mind and meta ethics really rather quickly. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> Not uncommon in these conversations. <laughs> um, but so <laughs> our statements of, of right and wrong are, are just part of our lexicon. It's just it's it's yeah. it's how we talk. But then we can ask the question what is the status of them? And and one of one of the views is there just is no status of them. Um, because they just aren't the sorts of things that can be true or false. This is what's known as the non-cognitivist position. And so one of the most common, um, though crude, um, forms of non-cognitivism is that when we say that some action is wrong, we're saying that boo this action or yeah. <laughs> we're expressing our attitude towards this um, so this sort of act. Um, but that... View obviously has some problems because we, it obviously seems that there's a rational component of uh, our right and wrong. We've, it used to be the case that people thought that um, slavery was morally permissible, but through you know rational discourse, we have since moved on to now recognize slavery as something that is morally objectionable, and so. How do we account for that? And so, uh, a more sophisticated version of non-cognitivism is what's called universal prescriptivism. And so, this is the idea that when we say that something is wrong, we are expressing what we believe to be a universal command. So, a universal command, you know, something like "close the door" is rationally incompatible with another command of "go outside." Yeah. you can't you can't do both the, you know but to say close the door is not a claim that's going to be true or false. Does that make sense? So yes. it, it retains the non-cognitivist element of this view while then allowing for um, rationality, rational considerations to, Come into play, so that we can we can then start to see inconsistencies between um, commands. Sure, it's a and
2: response it, to the the idea that you know people making moral claims are just making incoherent statements that they don't know about, which was a, a an original complaint I saw from a lot of non-cognitivists.
1: Yeah, so w- that's what's be the, called. Um, the Fraga-Geach problem. So I won't yeah. go too – I'm beginning way too deep in metaethics. I apologize. This is your wheelhouse, though. <laughs> <laughs> really, like um, – Yeah, so because uh, to uh, lay my cards on the table, so I'm, I'm not in the non-cognitivist camp. I'm in, I'm in the opposite camp, um, the cognitivist camp. So I believe that there um, some moral sentences can be true or false. Um, And I'm a realist in the sense that um, some of the moral sentences are true. They're not all systematically false. So another view in metaethics is that, yeah, we make moral claims, but these refer to properties that don't actually exist in the world. So therefore, all of our claims about them are systematically false. So a, a really good metaphor here is our concept of witches. So we can make perfectly coherent claims about witches um, that seem like they could be true or false, but there are no witches. So all of our claims about witches are just false. Um, but again, I, I'm a realist, so I don't take that position. I believe that there are some moral sentences that can, in a, in a uh, robust sense, be true. Um, and I believe that those sentences are made true by properties other than the attitudes or responses of subjects, so I don't believe that there's any subjective characteristic about any particular person or any groups of person which make claims, moral certain moral claims true. And then where my view <laughs> gets sounds it sounds weird, um, and I I'll certainly concede that is is that I believe that moral properties are not identical to any set of non-moral properties. So I don't believe that we can for example, reduce morality to human psychology, nor do I think we can reduce morality to facts about human nature or about even the nature of a god. So I'm an anti-reductionist. I don't believe that we can... Like, I used a reductionistic model earlier in the natural sciences by reducing politics to psychology to biology to chemistry to physics. I don't think we can use that same redu- reductionistic model when we're talking about something like reasons or rationality. Let, or ask, let me ask some questions to try to understand this.
2: Because like, a lot of it sounds really appealing. And I've heard you talk about this in different you know, formats with different people in the past. Sure. Um, like, when you make a moral claim, whatever claim you want to make,
1: and well, let's, your, let's let's keep it simple and we'll just say the claim is some things matter. And um
2: why do they matter? So, uh, it's great question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I set you up. <laughs> well, no, I mean um, like this is like a, this is what a lot
1: of people listening are going to wonder. And, yeah, it's a great no, it's the right question to ask because there are at least four senses in which something might matter. So we have to ask, what do we mean? You know, how might some things matter? And so I've already, we've already mentioned one, the psychological sense. Something mattering consists of attitudes or motivational responses towards things. Um, Things might matter in a rule implying sense. So, Things matter because there are rules distinguishing between what is allowed and disallowed or correct or incorrect. So think of like grammar, um, our political laws that we, you know, that are um, through a legislation. Um, We can matter in that sense. Um, There's a command implying sense. Things, something's matter involves commands from an authority. So something matters because God says it matters. But then there's a fourth view of mattering, the one that I adopt, and that's the reason implying sense. And so I believe that there, um, some things matter because there are reasons for everyone to care about these things. So what's a good example? So the example I like to use, I like to use two, one practical and one theoretical. And so the practical one is future pain. So we all have reason to want to avoid future pain. And if some form of anti-realism was true, that couldn't be the case. Because what I'm saying is that the very nature of pain, not actual pain that's happening, but future pain, pain that hasn't actually happened, the very nature of that gives everyone reason to care about it because it matters in this reason-implying sense. Now the theoretical one that I like to use is the nature of a sound argument. So if it's the case that some argument has valid premises, or uh, has a valid structure, and has true premises, that makes it the case that we should, ought, or must accept the conclusion of that argument. And so we have something to care about. Something matters. Truth. Sound arguments matter in a way that we all have reason to care about them. And we can't reduce these truths to any fact about our psychology. Because um, if we did, we could be, end up with all sorts of implausible implications. Because we could say, well, what if it's the case that someone wanted to eat a car? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that you could never have a reason to want to eat a car. But if we imagine someone who um, desired, um, even after procedural rationality, and... Um, reflecting on their situation, desire to eat a car, the anti-realist views here are going to require that this person has a reason to try to eat a car. And I just think that's... it's (laughs) It's just really hard to believe. And so I also think, when we move to the theoretical example, that when someone acknowledges that some argument is valid and has true premises but then says, I'm not going to accept the conclusion of that argument. They're making a mistake. They're getting it wrong. And how are they getting it wrong? They're getting it wrong because they ought to accept the conclusion of that argument. And I think that's a really powerful argument to say that if we're we're going to insist that reasons are reducible to human psychology, And then we have to permit in, in this, that there could be cases in which someone has reasons to just, they are, that we just don't have reasons to accept, um, the conclusions of sound arguments. And I just, I find that just super, I just find it a dead end. (laughs) Now, it's, Um, it's
2: really unappealing to imagine somebody wanting to eat a car.
1: Yeah, it, it and and that's not to say so I'm I could I, I'll I'll be the first to admit that I haven't had the last word in these meta ethical discussions. Sure. Um and that just might be the, the that just might be the way the world is. And that's that's the bullet that I have to somehow figure out how to bite. See that's that's where I was sitting. Yeah. Is- and and, and that's 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 the deep nature of these questions, is because it's it's you know where are you going? Where where what bullets do you bite? What right. are the most impalpable um, bullets? Like what, I have to which, bite some wild bullets, believing that there's no yeah, free will. But 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 notice that we're even in the very process of doing this. We're saying we're thi- we're thinking we're we're implicitly using the concept of a reason that I'm. Um, alluding to here, we're, we're asking which bullets count more or less in favor of us biting. Well, yeah. We're saying, what is about this bullet that but, it's okay, or it would be more right for me to bite this bullet than that bullet? But I think Am can- I making a mistake or getting something wrong if I bite this bullet instead of that bullet?
2: Well, yeah, but I think we can probably find examples where people don't do this.
1: Absolutely. So this is a hypothetical scenario. So we're, we're, I mean, we're uh, imagining, you know, imagining someone wanting to eat a car. I don't know if someone actually has this. And we don't need that example. We can just pick out a
2: wild example of someone that did something irrational.
1: Yeah, but so when you say irrational... So I'm going I want to use the concept of irrational in the same way that I'm using the concept of wrong. Right. If I'm say, if I'm saying that something is irrational I'm saying we're we're believing or acting in a way that we ought not to. Now this might not be a moral wrong in the sense you know it might not affect uh, the community of people that we're in it might not be immoral for me to believe in Santa Claus. But I, there is still a sense of wrong or irrational um, yeah, that I think has an objective sense, a sense that doesn't depend on any facts, any subjective characteristic
2: well, and I yeah, am I think, making this true like I'm agreeing with all of this. I think sure. it's really well thought out um I think that we have like God bless plantinga we have <laughs> an evolved preference for results that provide some things. Um, And I think that that this kind of thing would be expected in a situation like that. I think that we've evolved to preference, you know, choices that reduce suffering. And we have the unique insight to kind of generalize that, whereas many animals do not. And I think that that is a uniquely human thing. Um, and I think when we talk about moral systems, we do talk about that, a moral system, like when we talk about morality, we are talking about a generalization of preferences because the result to those preferences runs counter to some of those evolved, you know, preferences. Gotcha.
1: Um, Does that, that? No, I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, that helps, uh, lay out some of your views. I wanted to come back, try to, uh, uh, this is a good w- uh, point, I think, in which we can bring this back to free will, Because you brought up um, an objection earlier that I'd like for us to revisit. Um, since I laid out my uh, theoretical case of sound arguments and yeah. wanting to accept the conclusions of sound arguments and how that we have objective, normative reasons to want to do this. Um One of the um, objections that you raised um, was that compatibilism, the view that there is this sense of could have done otherwise, that is compatible with causal determinism, is potentially making a mistake of affirming the consequent. And so affirming the consequent is a formal fallacy of logic, where... It's just an invalid argument form. And so we can only raise this objection to a view in that to an argument in that form. Now, I just made a very, very important claim. I said we can only do this if it's in this certain form. That's again assuming that there's a, you know, we can be getting we can apply this fallacy affirming the consequent right. Wrong. We there's there's right applications of it, and there are wrong applications.
2: I, I might I might want to pause here because I think it might be better said. I think I would like to th- clarify uh, an it's Absolutely. an appeal to consequence.
1: It's an appeal to consequence. Okay.
2: Yeah, affirming the consequent is a formal fallacy where you know it's yes. like it's raining outside and I came in and it was wet. I came in and it was wet. Therefore, it's raining outside would be affirming the consequent. We don't know why you are wet when you come in.
1: Yes. So um, this is an interesting objection because we have a form of argument, um, a unique form of argument that doesn't require any of its own premises. It uses all of the premises of an interlocker, and we call this a reductio ad absurdum argument. So it's where you take the premises of another position and you derive an absurd consequence from it. And so that's a reason to reject I would want to say that that's a, regi- a reason to reject that view. Okay. Um, and So I did this earlier. I said that um, the subjectivist view would have to admit that if someone wanted to try to eat a car. They would have a reason to try to eat a car. And so that was a reductio ad absurdum of that subjectivist position, saying that, look, the consequence of this view counts against this view. The nature of this absurdity, the absurdity itself, not anything about me, but the nature of the the absurdity that is a consequence of it, counts against that view. And so... I think we can do this same move in the free will debate. So we can say that, you know, look, one of the reductio ad absurdum of the incompatibilist position, um, if we are going to put plant our feet in the determinism camp, is that morality goes out the window. And so that that's something that should worry us. We should care, we should want to preserve our concepts of morality. This is the, um, again, I mentioned earlier, a lot of ink's been spilled trying to preserve this on its own. But I'm not so sure we can just say that we can object to this move by saying, oh, it's just appeal to consequences. Well, yeah, we are appealing to consequences, but are we making a mistake by doing that or is this is the absurdity that is derived from this view then the fact that counts in favor of us changing our mind we would be getting it wrong and this fact this absurdity is what helps us see that we're getting it wrong um
2: lot of stuff there
1: <laughs> yeah i know i know um, it's, it's it's a rabbit hole i know i don't uh, so to go your your objection was an appeal to consequence well you at first said affirming the consequent, and then you changed it to appeal yeah, to consequence the, the, and i totally i'm with you on that uh, change it to move so um how does the compatibilist position um fallaciously appeal to consequences is how can we can we flesh that objection out more um
2: i guess my concern and i might not be able to flesh it out more
1: that's fair yeah. that's what that's what it's, we do that's why we oh, yeah, have these conversations here we are
2: <laughs> um i don't like i don't think that I would ever, at least me personally, I wouldn't ever want to, like, I don't like holding positions. Like, I believe in morality because if morality doesn't exist, I don't like the consequences. Sure, that would be a preference. Right. I'm with
1: you.
2: and, And that's what I was going for when I said that. I, okay. If if I was conveying that I was offering a, a formal objection to the idea of consequentialism, then I
1: overspoke. Well, it's, it's so we're just trying to get clear on yeah. on the meanings of it because I think I think and please stop me if I, if I'm getting this wrong. Um, you've cast it already in these subjectivist terms, where the objection is from the preference of the person giving it. Whereas what makes it an objection is, I don't prefer this conclusion, therefore it counts against this conclusion. I'm with you. I don't, I don't think that subjectivist view has a whole lot of pl- plausibility to it. And, and I guess the we, reason I bring
2: it up is because I have come
1: across this, but you're not presenting that kind of argument. No, I'm, I'm in that objectivist camp. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, no, no, no it's, not, it's not something about my preference to the um, consequence of the view, I'm saying that there's an absurdity in the view that my preference can then be right or wrong in response to.
2: Yeah, I don't. So, I don't mean to saddle you with that subjectivist idea.
1: No, no. So, and that's uh, well, we've made this objection much more clear then, and I think we've resolved our dis- disagreement on, on that one. Because um, I had that the appeal to consequence objection written down i had the what does morality look like without right or wrong and then the chess program and i'm trying to make sure we you touched all the all bases of, here yeah we've touched all the bases um so that people have the, the tools to think about these things it's um, been an
2: hour so i don't want to take up much more of your time oh that's fair um no, this is like it's really nice to have somebody that's willing to take the time cuz usually when I talk about this I'm talking to a bunch of lay people that just haven't read any of the ink. Yeah.
1: And, and there's and a lot of it. <laughs> and, and there is
2: and it's not that I uh think that well of course I you know I hold my positions cuz they seem the most rational to me but I'm not under the illusion that my position is the fi- like you know is is settled Fact, like I'm done with methi- sure. meta ethics. I did a good job. I'm going to do something else. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to pull up Wittgenstein or anything.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough.
2: Um, but like, I, there's still a lot of things that I'm hes- i that I'm hesitant about. In like, I feel like I because I completely agree with like your in, your view of morality as like there. Are, well. I should say like, I'm still hesitant on the "oughts" thing. I think that
1: w- we, we, have that's to fair. The that's the, that that is the concept of morality. All of the ink that's been spelt has been around the concept of ought. So, <laughs> and, 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 and I think, and I've always, like, I felt for a long time that the aught
2: is kind of an artifact of language.
1: A, ling- a linguistic convention.
2: Right. And it, when we say ought, we are just... Like, it is one... It is a tool to convey a set of preferences. And if we try to find a properly basic... Like, a proper preference, we end up finding a proper preference at rationality. Like, when you're talking about you should or ought to accept a rational conclusion to an argument. Mm-hmm. I think that that... like we can ask several questions about why we should prefer one thing over another, but eventually the buck has to stop somewhere. And that's that sure. anti-reductionist idea that you were talking about.
1: Yes. Well,
2: like there's the buck has to stop with a sense of experiential creature suffering.
1: Yeah. So um, I would say that the, the buck stops with the principle of uh, the art principle itself. So if it's, we ought to try to make things go impartially best, or we ought to treat people in ways that no one could reasonably object. I think that's that's where it stops. There is like that's, no... That's the basic. That's the basic. That's the basic. That's the primitive. And just like a mathematical principle, we're going to have to discover this principle. We're going to have to um do sure, different like, thought experiments and work it out and go, you know okay and we've over time climbed the mountain so speak. Yeah. To, like to you, this the principle. slavery
2: example that you gave is an example of us refining that better understanding yes. of what we ought to do
1: and i could get into hegel here and i just i promise i won't
2: man i knew you <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: well, one thing like how do you deal with the
2: ought problem like we ought so, to accept ought as the principle.
1: <laughs> so um, I think that so that oughtness is just a it's a primitive concept. So yeah, like if you just try could... yeah, so if we try, it's like consciousness or um, one of my favorite examples is the term uh, uh, light. It's really difficult to explain the concept of what light is without using the term light, but it can be done. We've we've done it in way you know, in physics. But there are other concepts that we we can't quite do this with in something like conscious experience, what it feels like to have certain experiences. Man, I think that's
2: a, I think consciousness gets to be the most basic. Like I had yeah, a discussion well, so, about properly basic beliefs with somebody.
1: So uh, truth, I think, is one of, another one of these irreducible um now we can we can we can talk about you know theories of truth and structures of truth, but the concept is primitive. If you were to ask, you know, well, why should we believe what is true? Um, you've just hit philosophical bedrock. Um, just like if you ask, you know, well, why should I do what I ought to do? Um, there just is no there. There just is no, is no answer to that question.
2: Right. It's just a bad question. I feel like though, like in some ways, that that kind of supports the idea of like the weird. And this is me leaning to my grand priest inclinations. Is like there's maybe like it's compatibilism. Maybe free will and determinism are contradictory, but the contradiction can just exist. Um. Before I go down that weird rabbit hole, (laughs) Um, because I'm not necessarily scared of contradictions. I think the liar paradox is a fine example of a contradiction.
1: Yeah, uh, so I was about to say, I think the the better word here to to use is paradox. So I think there are certainly paradoxes that we just have to embrace. That it just, you know, certain things just seem paradoxical. Um, One uh, of the the things...
2: To, to go back to where I was like kicking off to before I kind of, you know, drift, <laughs> drifted around is we have talked about how oughts and is, is seem like they do seem to exist and there, there seems to be a reason to prefer them. And there seems to be advantages when those are preferred. Like we ought to be moral because ultimately, ultimately, it, we are better off. Like I feel like I feel like there, that there's not necessarily a bot like that. Like, why should we be moral? We should be moral because there's less suffering.
1: Yeah, if we're if we're not moral, uh, there would be bad consequences. Right, and that's reason enough.
2: And I agree. Like, I assume we're on the same page there. <laughs> what 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 I look at though is how humanity develops this in the same way that going back to my chess engine example like it prefers moves because it has the test of experience and i think that that test of experience is something like that that is unavoidable like there isn't i don't know if middle knowledge is the right term but in in a oh, way yeah,
1: that's, like that's got a very specialized term uh, meaning in philosophy r- of religion
2: <laughs> right it, but it, the reason I mention it is because like when Alpha zero went through all of the possibilities, it couldn't know any possibility until it had at least looked at it and I think that like the human experience of discovering you know the moral progress that we make, I feel like has not been. Like, it's been a causal process. We didn't accidentally, you know, get willed moral progress by God in a dream, because that would be convenient and impress me a lot. Like, if God, you know, made me dream some great moral truth that I could then apply, I would find myself much more uh, keen on accepting some anthropomorphic gods that have been mentioned to me. But... The learning process and the preference the preferencing of all these things has come at an unavoidably hard cost and I think and that that's so completely that, causal
1: that's uh I'll, uh maybe the, the great place for me to to stick a, uh, a pen in um uh we were mentioning embracing paradox earlier and yeah so the co- the compatibilist um paradox, so to speak, is, you know, well, do we have free will? And the compatibilist answers? well, yeah, because we have no choice but to have free
2: will. Isaac Bishevitz singer for the win.
1: Um because what I uh, um I think what you just said is 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 starting to hit at the right point where I think we should be looking for um free will. And that there's this process Um, You you said it with morality, but we can relate the morality back to the free will um, discussion as well, um, because ought implies can. And so we've evolved, freedom has evolved, and so we've had this explosion of evitability, to use a word that we don't often use. We normally use the word inevitability, but this explosion of evitability is this, this explosion of can. And because we've had this explosion of can do's, those cans then bring with them the odds. Because you can then ask yourself about the future. You know, should I can do this? X, I can do Y, I can Uh, do Z. Should I do? This is where I get
2: thick-headed about it, though. Yeah, like some people, like we we are talking about. An idealized, like, in an ideal environment, we would be able to make the rational choice. But I think that that ideal environment doesn't exist. Like, I think that, you know, taking examples like when people are exposed to lead in a neonatal environment, they are more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. And then they have a difficulty making those rational, moral choices because there is a real biological component that gets in the way of that freedom.
1: Gotcha. All right, uh, that's probably a good place to, yeah. to end. <laughs> yeah, we covered really a lot of ground. I, I'm not, I really cannot yeah. overemphasize just how much ground we were able to cover in that hour and 15 minutes. You're smart uh, as a
2: whip, Ben. Man, I <laughs> enjoy listening to you. I do it was-
1: appreciate. It. I've I've very much enjoyed talking with you, and I've always I've always enjoyed uh, interacting with you. Uh, so this was certainly a very very great treat to be able to finally do it with our our real voices instead of behind a keyboard.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it it was actually pretty uh, fun just to be a fly on the wall and listen to a conversation that's outside <laughs> of my wheelhouse.
1: Awesome, awesome.
0: Yeah, uh, man. Thank you for joining us. That was uh that was. Really fun just to listen to. I know I didn't say much, but uh, I I was still here for the whole thing. I promise. Awesome. <laughs> uh, but, but as we
2: close out, what would you recommend? I, I some some place to go and read to kind of expand my view a little bit on the topic.
1: Which one, morality or free will, or both? Uh, let's, <laughs> let's do free will cause So for for free will, I, I so um I have many deep disagreements with Daniel Dennett, but. I think his work on free will here is really, really great, and I've found it the most persuasive account of a compatibilist free will um, that I've encountered. And so, his two main works are called "Elbow Room" and "Freedom Evolves." And if those seem a little too daunting, fear not. Um, there are several YouTube videos of him, you know, giving lectures. Um interviews with things like Closer to Truth. Um, those are really great um places to to get your feet wet, to 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 kind of dive in. Because there is, I'm sure your listeners have already realized, there's a language game here. There's a there's a learning curve of just trying to understand what all the terms mean and the concepts they refer to and how they relate to the to the questions to each other and the questions they're trying to answer. And so those videos Definitely, definitely help with that yeah um and for morality, my view um is derived largely from Derek Parfit yep. and his works Reasons in Persons, and on what matters and again these are these can be very, very daunting, especially on what matters. It's uh three books, well over a thousand pages, um, but again, you can look we have an episode of Real Atheology, I want to say it's episode 14, it's called Irreducibly Normative Truths. And so that was one of my really big projects of trying to help give people a a jumping in point um, to the, what's my view, what's often called ethical non-naturalism. Because it doesn't really um, exist, the jumping in point on YouTube so much. But the Stanford Encyclopedia um, entry on moral non-naturalism and the Wikipedia page on ethical non-naturalism are great places as well to jump in to try to read up more on
2: sure. these views. Well, I appreciate all of this.
1: Absolutely. Thanks again yeah. for having me. It was It was great fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really man. enjoyed it. Thank
0: you. Yeah, and for uh, uh, anybody who is interested in also becoming a guest, uh, by all means, visit our website. Click on the uh, Become a Guest link at uh, AnalyzePodcast.com. And uh, if you would like to get access to exclusive content or uh, uh, some of the extended uh, show content and probably be throwing some extra video stuff on there as well, uh, you can go to the Patreon. You can also find a link to the Patreon on the uh, the website, there's there's a link from there. But uh, again, um, that was Ben Watkins from Relay Theology. And thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Have a good night, guys. Good night.